Well, I'm here uh, with Sam Henderson. I want to welcome everybody to another episode of Empires of the Future. Sam is a new friend of mine. Uh, You and your wife, Faith, just moved here to Evansville uh, just about two months ago, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, And what is your official title at the University of Evansville? Yeah, my title at the UE is the eSports coordinator and head coach. So for the eSports side of things, I handle a lot of the coordination, the logistics, administration. And then for my secondary title as the head coach, I handle a lot of the coaching roles that any classic coach would handle. Right. So you could think, um, the way I've been thinking about your job is, uh, say, 100 years ago, uh, a college had just been doing academics. What a crazy idea. Um, but say at that time, a lot of them probably did start uh, various athletic programs. Uh, What you are doing is you have to make decisions about which kinds of programs, I mean, which games are going to be uh, competed, uh, which games are going to be competitive at UE, and then who you will recruit and, uh, you know, what goals you're going to have at the kind of the collegiate level. So it's it's a big task that you've got ahead of you. Yeah, no, that's all correct. Yeah. So let me ask you this, just to start us off uh, today. Uh, what did what does being an esports coordinator on a Monday morning, uh, where we are here in uh, mid August? How many weeks has school been in session at UE? Uh, actually, isn't in session yet. Oh. It'll be in session in about a week. Okay, so you still have another week before there's really students on campus. Yeah, yeah, they're starting to come in because of athletics, but slowly but surely, this next week we'll have everyone on campus. Yeah. So what does it look like for you kind of today, this week, being an esports coordinator? Yeah. So since I'm just starting in this role at UE and we're just starting the program there, it looks a little bit different than maybe a classic Monday would look like for any other place. But for me currently right now, that looks like obvious the traditional things with checking your email, making sure that all of the meetings are scheduled. And then from there, I go on and check to see if uh, recruitment numbers on our website has, have been up and recontacting those that have reached out. Um, and then the very last bit is just making sure that my, my whole week is planned and ready to go. So recruitment numbers on your website, what, is, what does that mean? What's on the website for recruitment? Yeah, yeah. So we use a third-party website called Stay Plugged In, SPIN for short. Okay. And so it's a really well-known pipeline for high school kids to get plugged into colleges for esports. Yeah. And so we check our website on there to make sure that any students who over the weekend or maybe p- the last week have reached out saying, hey, we want to meet and talk about your opportunity there. So then we just kind of schedule that meeting right. and everything like that. Well, I know that uh, everybody who's listening is probably in a very different place about knowing uh, about esports, about what it is, um, about where it is, about why uh, colleges might want an esports program. Uh, I know that you have a story about this. And so really, uh, I want to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up uh, and, and where are you from and all that? Yeah, so I'm from regionally what we call it. And if you, you're from the region, you would know it as the Quad Cities. Yes. But within those cities, because it's quad meaning four, then there's four individual cities. So in the one of those individual cities, I'm from Moline, which is one of the major cities in that in that grouping. Um, I've I was originally born in uh, Korea in Busan, and then I was adopted at six months from my parents, and then uh, moved there all the way until 
um, about six months I, I had uh, flown in there. And then ever since then, yeah. I had been in the Quad Cities until, I mean, just recently. What are the four cities that are the Quad Cities there in Northern Illinois and then across, uh, what, across into Iowa? Yeah, across yeah. Iowa. So two cities are in Iowa, and those two are Davenport and Bettendorf. Mm-hmm. Um, Bettendorf's the better one out of the two. And then on the Illinois side, it's Moline and Rock Island, and okay. Rock Island's the better of those two as yeah. well. Uh, so, and I'm from Southern Illinois, uh, which means nothing as far as knowing anything about Northern Illinois. I always have laughed at anybody who's not from Illinois. I would always, you know, say that I was from there and they would say, oh, I've, uh, I've been to Chicago just a, a year ago. I was in Chicago and I would say, well, I've never been there. <laughs> and in fact, it's so far away that nothing I've ever done has taken me there. Right. How often did you go to Chicago showing a uh, grown up? Yeah. So for us, Chicago was about three hours away. So not too okay. bad when traveling. Um, really we went just to see the, a lot of the tourist places mm-hmm. like, uh, the, can't remember the name, but the mile strip, mm-hmm. um, and then a lot of the shopping places. But if we're talking about like suburbs, I, I, I visit a lot mainly because of uh, a part of my pa- past is I played tennis. And so yeah. those areas within Chicago are very notorious for their tennis teams. Okay. And so we, we traveled there often um, to kind of visit and play against them. So three hours is not uh, a hop, skip, and a jump. It would take you a little longer to get there. Man, Illinois is a really large state, isn't yes. it? Uh, I can't believe that you're that far away when uh, I was five and a half or something uh, where I was from, but that's just still very far away. Yeah, we're very lucky to have such a big state. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, well, great. So how did you then come to faith in Christ? Yeah, so it all started really from my uh, sophomore year in high school. I My background from there was uh, my family from both sides. My mom and dad were not really religious at all. Mm-hmm. They had dabbled in religion, but not really settled on anything. And so they just they just kind of let me go through life without any kind of contact with it. Um, But until then, uh, in my sophomore year of high school, I was diagnosed with biological depression. Um, I hadn't really known what was happening, but I knew there was a change with me distancing myself from friends, Mm -hmm. family, and then just feeling overly um, saddened about Mm -hmm. various amounts of things. And during that year, I had tried numerous times to take my own life. Mm. Um, But all had failed for really no reason. My family wasn't there. My friends weren't there. I knew that I didn't want to live. So I knew something supernatural that was happening. Um, I couldn't quite put my, put, put something onto it to say that this is why. Um, but I just knew something other than me or my surroundings was helping me in that aspect. And so I tried looking for it a while and uh, after a while, due to life, I just gave up with trying to find what it was and just appreciated that life was continuing on mm-hmm. um, better. And so it wasn't until three years later where I would be invited to church um, back in my hometown uh, in the Quad Cities where a couple of my friends just casually invited me to church to come and just mm-hmm. um, be with them. And so I would come the following Sunday, um, have have just some conversation with pastors and various churchgoers, and it didn't really mean anything to me at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, but I got really confused during the sermon, and it really didn't make sense at yeah, all. Yeah. 
um, especially how in depth they were going at mm -hmm. that time. So it made sense why I didn't, why it didn't click. But then after that, uh, I started reading the Bible, really understanding uh, more and more what was going on. And I really got hooked by just the Bible being a great story mm -hmm. um, with a lot of things going on and just having no idea what was happening, but overall having a really good story. And over time, a lot of truths got revealed to me um, through the Holy Spirit. And then I would come to know that I was a wretched sinner in need of a Savior. And so then during the summer of 2018, I would devote my life to Christ. Yeah. So were you involved in youth group or who are the people that were kind of helping you along the way? Yeah, yeah. So I asked numerous times through the church to see, um, because I had heard of mentorship or sure. discipleship. And so I knew it was something that I needed, but I wasn't sure who to ask. Mm -hmm. So I was graciously um, allowed to have the senior pastor there yeah. uh, mentor me. And he, he taught me a lot. Um, from various things that we were kind of discussing with how to be a biblical man to how to uh, disciple other people in various aspects like yeah. that. Yeah, great, great. Um, well, let me, uh, there's another big track of your life that we haven't come to yet. So what is the path to becoming a pro gamer or what was your path to becoming a, a pro gamer? And how old were you when you first, uh, say, competed as a professional yeah, okay. yeah. So my journey really started when I was uh, about nine years old. I just had played with friends uh, in person t through split screen. Sure. And I just knew that because of my competitive nature that I wanted to beat my friend. And he was way better than me, had it longer. So I yeah. had to beat him. And so anytime I could, I, I tried to beat him. And that kind of grew my passion within this competition. But and what within, were you playing at that time? Uh, Modern Warfare 2. Okay. So the, cl the classic trick shots and various things like that. Yeah. Um, I was terrible at it at the time and I, and I knew it and that's what made me so mad um, because I wanted to be better than my friend. Yep. Um, then I started really getting into the, the realm of what we would traditionally probably call esports. is that competitive sport where you're playing an objective based game. Um, and so I started getting into that realm of video games and I realized I was very good when I went on to the multiplayer aspect of the game yeah. and so as i got better and better uh, the course normally goes where you realize you're so good that you want to play it for money and then you start wagering on yourself to kind of beat other people and so you uh call of duty has a classic website called game battles or gbs mm -hmm. and so you go through that website bet on yourself say hey i can beat you on a 1v1 you put money on it say you put ten dollars the other person put ten dollars and then the winner gets the the lump sum of the money so i did not know about this how old were you the first time you did this yeah yeah so legally you're not allowed to do it until <laughs> until you're 18 obviously when, uh -huh. you're, when you're an adult um, but when I was young, due to not necessarily verifying your age on those websites at the time, I was about 11 at well, the yeah, time. Well, yeah, this foolproof system of them <laughs> asking you now, assure us that you're 18 or older. Okay, I agree. Yes, I am. Yes, this system that, that you know, has obviously been applied through Facebook and, and various, you know, <laughs> models. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, surely nobody would lie about this. Right. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, so let me ask then. Uh, you were 11 when you first did it. Say by 15. How many times do you think you had bet on yourself? Oh, I mean, it would be thousands. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 
with the way that it was originally, that was the way that you measured your skill. Yeah. All of the best players weren't um, having these million dollar competitions right. or being sponsored all the time. It was you were taking money from someone else who yeah, thought you were they like were a better. pool shark. Right, right. But online, how did you? Um, how was the money changing hands? Like, did you have a debit card or? Yeah, most of the things at that time was through PayPal. Uh-huh. That was it. Still, you just is. had a PayPal account, and then you had money in it, and right, there you right, are, right. And then it's just linked to that, and then it just comes in and out as yeah. as you win or lose. So if you bottomed out to zero, which did that ever happen? Did you ever hit zero in your PayPal account? Early on in my career, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was just like waiting for birthdays, waiting for Christmas <laughs> to kind of get I didn't that money. Think about that, okay. And so then once you got that money, then it's like, oh, thanks. I'm like, back in business. Yeah, where where everyone else thinks that you're gonna use it to buy like Pokemon cards or something, right? Or video games. I'm putting it into online betting. Right, and man, and this is so good. I mean, one, you're educating me. I had no idea. This is just not something that I've thought about very much. Um, but then too, you're, you're educating parents because this is something to know about that's going on out there. Did your parents know about this? Was going no, on? My, my parents until recently had no idea about my career within esports right. or anything. And they, they didn't realize how big it was. Right. Um, where I think this is just a hidden gem that is really missed by a lot of people just, just inherently, but definitely my parents not knowing that, uh, aspect was, was to my benefit, but, but to their, detriment also too goodness uh that is very interesting that's that's intense and i mean um you were sorting out through real means who was good and who wasn't right right and that's kind of how it sorts itself out still today um with how professional players play i mean you see it all the time if you go to twitch watch some of the best players within call of duty they're still betting money on these games they're still playing they're not playing online in these competition pools Mm -hmm. because they already know that they're the best. They don't need to prove that anymore, but they want the money. It's just, it's just the high of winning and everything Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And it makes it intense certainly as well. Right. Um, so were you ever sponsored, uh, did you have a sponsorship? Do you have a team and, and all this? Yeah. Later when you get off of the GBs and you kind of get into trying to find a team, uh-huh. that's where I found my professional team called Noble Gaming. Uh-huh. Um, the overarching league that I was under was called the Major League Gaming um, Organization. Mm-hmm. They're not in existence anymore, but at the time. I remember were, MLG days. Right. Yeah. Right. And they were running a lot of the those tournaments. And so the, one of the teams I was under was Noble gaming um and we were sponsored by various various different things like uh not g fuel at the time but it was just the predecessor essentially mm-hmm. was uh, always going to be mountain dew and so that was the major sponsor for everyone as well as uh doritos was a big sponsor <laughs> for the exact reason that everyone would think right right, right. the classic <laughs> gamer that's right um and and other things like that where they were like some glasses companies that would sponsor for yeah. better better visual play and and various things like that but yeah. uh, nothing that i really got in hand it was more the company getting sure. a cut rather than the players getting a cut at that time how did you get connected with a team yeah, so eventually as you play GBs, that's kind of where you make your connection is, hey, you're actually really good. Right. We're looking for a player. We got a spot. Do you want to do you want to see about it? And you really kind of play with the the team a little bit. You get connected mm-hmm. and then you uh, 
when you can take the time, you kind of get together, have conversations and connect with them from a personal level. Mm -hmm. Um, And so during that time, I was able to connect with those guys at Noble Gaming. Unfortunately, I didn't get a starting spot, but I did get a sub spot, which was really big at the time. Mm -hmm. And then then you go from there. Um, The nature, though, at that time was everything was the Wild West. Everything was crazy. It was called roster mania, where essentially one week you'd be on a team and then you'd get dropped and then you'd go for another team. And it was just crazy at that time. Right. And um, so my interest in esports starts from just being the same as you. I assume you played Mario games and Zelda games growing up. Uh, Were you what consoles did you have or were you more of a PC gamer growing up? Yeah, so I switched between a couple different consoles a lot of the time. So I originally started on the Nintendo 64, the yeah, classic. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I played the GameCube, then the Wii. Yeah. Then I went to computer to play a little StarCraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, then I went to PS2, Xbox 360, and then so on and so forth with yeah. the existing consoles. And you probably played, I mean, a lot of the, the popular games for all of these because uh, generally, in, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like this story is sort of, um, imagine being a kid in, say, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and you're playing baseball, and then somebody comes along and is like, do you know that colleges will have you play baseball? Right. Do you know that some people are playing this game for a living and you would just be like, say that again. How does, how is that possible? You know, this was just a game that I did for fun. And having grown up, um, with video games, uh, I didn't expect, uh, when when you were playing the N64, did you have any thoughts that you would uh, ever play for money or, uh, or that you would be a professional gamer of any kind? No, not when I was that young. Definitely. It was just for fun, really playing those games as, as you got a little bit older, you might've realized, Hey, this is, this is something that could be big. But I don't think you would have necessarily thought of it as like a sport where it was like, hey, this might be something that someone could play and then other people would watch. Right, right. And it's um, honestly one funny thing about that is it's still, I think, something that uh, we're trying to figure out. Certain games are much more interesting to watch people play than others. And that's something that uh, everybody should know is it's not as simple as... uh, any game can be an esport. Uh, not all games are interesting to watch people play. Right. And one of the struggles with esports is there's plenty of games that, um, if you don't know the game at all, you can't make sense out of what's happening. Shooters, in particular, I think, have this problem. If you are seeing a first person view of somebody playing the game, there's a lot of just like wild camera movement, and then they shoot. And then you'll see a little icon that they got to kill. And it's just kind of like, if you don't know what's going on, I've, I, I, as a person who have played games most of my life, can watch some of this and go, I have no idea what's happening right, right now. Right. And the same is the inverse where a lot of games like StarCraft II that's made by Blizzard, exceedingly fun to watch. But mm. once you get your hands on the game, impossible to play. It is, yeah. Yeah. And and that is um, my favorite game still to this day. And and uh, commonly referred to as the first eSport is, right. is StarCraft. And and the story, it's, it's interesting about this because it is a, a sort of a multicultural story that um, in South Korea, uh, Seoul is centrally located in the country and they have PC cafes because of South Korean culture. People have gotten together for years in these uh, just 
in a imagine a coffee shop, but with just a bunch of PCs. And people get together and play games together. And this has been going on since the 90s. The right. original StarCraft was really big in this. And while I'm playing here in the Midwest uh, on a, a weak computer uh, with dial-up internet uh, against people from all over the world and having horrible lag on StarCraft in the 90s, well, people at PC cafes are doing LAN parties and playing in you know real time without lag right there, and that led to something that the world had not really seen before, which was, no, this can be a competitive environment where anyone can play as long as you have the skill. Right. And Blizzard had no idea that this is what would happen, um, you know, because real-time strategy games at that time. I played uh, Warcraft 2 was the first real-time strategy game I ever played. In, and you, anyone who plays it, you would not look at it and go, ah, yes, this is comparable to baseball or, you know, football. It, right. This is so exciting to, to watch as it takes 30 seconds for a, a, a basic footman to build, and then you can drag five of them and say, go, go attack that other person's wall over there. You, you would not have thought, right. aha, I see a future here that's going to be billions of dollars. Yes. Um, but meanwhile, uh, coming out of Seoul, uh, it, it captured the interest uh, of the country in a lot of ways. Seoul and, and South Korea is just a very interesting place, having, uh, having a very uh, difficult past, having been conquered by the Chinese in the past, having been fought over. So that the culture is a mixture of a lot of different elements, uh, including a lot of Western culture. Right. Obviously, they're playing a Western game, a Western-designed game, which was uh, StarCraft and Blizzard games are still uh, very popular there. Um, but then... People begin to try to, okay, well, if, if they can do that in Korea, um, and by the way, um, anyone who's not familiar with this, uh, something in the water in, in Korea, I don't, no one can ex exactly explain it uh, to me. I'd be, I'll be asking your thoughts on this. There's speed, uh, the speed that uh, a lot of people are capable of competing at. So there's this uh, measurement uh, specifically in uh, StarCraft called actions per minute. And, and this matters for other games too. And that's literally say uh, grabbing a group of units is an action. Telling them to go attack is another action. Right. But there are people um, plenty. I mean, say a couple of hundred people at the highest level who can play say 400 actions per minute yeah. and and until you see that happening um uh, it's kind of hard to get your head around um but again think about that that's four or five actions per second right that you're talking about uh, so what do you think is going on there what accounts for that because for quite a while westerners weren't able to compete at that speed and still there are for some reason more uh, Koreans in particular who are able to do this. Well, how did, do you have any idea? Yeah. So I think it's just the way that they're operating is as you're at the highest level of play mm -hmm. that it only breeds excellence. And so as you're at that high level, you can see it in other formats or titles where in League of Legends, some of the best players in Korea are moving at 600 actions per sec or per minute. Yeah. And they're moving so much faster but it's also they need less scrutiny with every press that they're, right. they're doing. And so it's a little bit different, but classically, they, I think the, the idea from Korea is they want more knowledge and more information 
than maybe the classic other regions of Europe and North America mm-hmm. where we're not collecting all of that data where, and being able to analyze as fast as the Korean region. Right. Um, and, and it's interesting in terms of how this gets going because uh, StarCraft 1 uh, was and still is being played in right. Korea. It's kind of... It's almost the national pastime. Yeah, uh, StarCraft One, and that's a game from 1996. I remember when that game came out, and um, so with with seeing the environment that existed there in Korea, Blizzard specifically designed StarCraft Two with esports in mind. Right. Um, StarCraft One is very awkward to control in some ways. You have to click every individual building to make units out of it. It doesn't almost do anything for you. You have to tell every, and, and what that means is you, you have to tell everything what you want it to do. Um, and it's very time consuming to just manage your base, much less to try to kill your opponent. Um, and so they streamlined a lot of that for StarCraft II, and they specifically wanted it to be an esport. And I remember from kind of 2008 to 2010 when we knew StarCraft II was coming, the excitement around it um, because in a lot of ways what they wanted to do was to take esports to the rest of the world right uh, and and that was the goal I mean um, a couple of guys who are uh, commentators moved to South Korea to be in the middle of this yeah. uh, one guy who is from um, Minnesota I think is where Artosis is from yeah. Dan Stankowski yeah. and uh, Nick uh, plot is from Kansas and both of these guys and the stories are crazy. I mean, these guys sleeping on people's couches, yes. living on almost nothing for this dream of being able to commentate a game that they love for a living. Right. Uh, they both had played professionally, but, um, so uh, here's a, a great moment to just pause and ask because for them, I think both of them pretty much stopped competing by the time they were 25. Yeah. Uh, what is the average sort of lifespan of a professional gamer? Car- the average career that is. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on what title you're really looking at for some of the reaction based games, such as, um, real time strategy or first person shooters, you're looking at a younger age. So mm-hmm. most of the people who who retire at that age is anywhere from 25 to 28. Yeah. That's the average retiring age for other games that maybe require less of your reaction time, um, would, which is using more of your brain in that capacity. That is has yet to be seen yeah. exactly when the retiring age, most people in general in esports though, retire at 32, if not 38. So in between yeah. that range. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, when your hands slow down. Right. Um, uh, some of this Twitch response, I, yes, uh, like you're saying, I, I think shooters are especially punishing if someone else is a little faster than you, then it's um, pretty obvious, right. right? Yes, I mean, it's a big difference. Milliseconds can make a huge difference with just inputting data and being right. able to respond. I mean, it's it's just drastically different. Right. So you're talking about um, high-end PCs. We're, we're not dealing with um, apples and oranges. Everybody's going to have to have the, the highest-end PC, the best uh, processor, RAM. Uh, that, is, that is not the question. The, the, uh, the hardware operates as it does. What you're trying to get it to is to where the person is what makes the difference. Right, right. And that's classically been not the case with a lot of the consoles having um, what what is classically known as just aiming 
uh, aim assist. Mm -hmm. And so as you would aim in on a person, the con the console or machine that you're playing on would help you a little bit more than maybe on a computer. And so that way you would be able to lock in on that player a little bit more. And so people actually favored consoles more right. than rather th than the PC that could run it faster. Uh -huh. But now we're seeing more and more uh, people transferring over to computers. So that way you can get that higher response time. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, let me ask you one more question about esports. We've had to take it a little aside here to uh, to bring everybody up to scale on how esports came about, and uh, and we'll have to talk more about how unpredictable it has been, yeah. and continues to be, um, because it's literally like imagine saying to a bunch of uh, young, excitable people, "Hey, the thing that you love to do, uh, what if you could just do that for a living?" But then uh, when when they begin to try to organize that and uh, lots of stories about how uh, good and bad has happened related to that. Um, so I, one more thing about Call of Duty I wanted to ask is when you were playing, you weren't playing solo, right? Were you were you on a team? How at that time, was it a solo game or were there like teams? Was that the main way that you competed? And how does that happen now? Yeah, so it, it depended what kind of competitor you were. Um, if you were someone who was maybe going for leaderboards or various things, you'd be a solo player. Mm -hmm. If you were looking for content creation, which was still within the lines of professional player, mm -hmm. then you were also a solo player most of the time, unless you were in a clan or group of people doing the exact same activity. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the time, if you're at the highest level of competition within the classical uh, title of esports, then it would be within Call of Duty standards, it would be a four on four okay. match where you're playing on any given map that's ruled by all teams as the standard maps that you play on, yes. just like a football field or baseball field. Yeah. So you played in terms of teams, uh, and does everybody have a role in that situation? Yeah, yeah. So as Call of Duty has gone on through the ages, these roles have really stuck still yeah. to this day. So within the four players format, there are four major roles. So there's the submachine gun, there's the secondary submachine gun, then there's the flex player who plays uh, a submachine gun or um, assault rifle, and then the, the last person's an assault rifle. Based on those four roles, there's four duties or jobs within mm -hmm. those four assigned roles. The, the AR is, the main AR, is the person who's the anchor, which controls a lot of the spawns, map rotation, um, con just controls the map, is essentially the quarterback. Yeah. The flex person is the person who's kind of the, the person who just is everywhere and anywhere. He's the well-rounded, jack-of-all-trades yeah. kind of person. The first main submachine gun is what we call an entry fragger. Essentially what that means is he looks for getting any slight advantage for the team yeah. as much as possible at risk for himself. Yeah. So he would sacrifice himself, but it would be for the team, essentially. And does he die the most? Right. Okay. That, that's classically the role. He gets the most kills or he dies the yeah, most. Yeah. And so um, the second submachine gun, however, is called the OBJ or objective control. And he is essentially tasked with either carrying the bomb during search and destroy or sitting on the point for hard point. And he's essentially just in mind for 
getting the objective win and that's his whole focus and that's it yeah and what role did you yeah so i played obj but then i later transferred into anchor yeah uh, because of just the way that i played more traditionally anchors don't have that fast of reaction speed so it catered to my kind of as as the time goes on yeah right yeah, I get that. Um, and so the the other thing that um, is so interesting about that is um, if you were to watch the game and you might say, well, I, I don't know what they're doing. I think people would be surprised that there are situations where it's like, no, the, the quarterback is the one telling, you know, what you're dealing with is he's telling the, the, the front guy, like, just, okay, just go be tactical. Go in and do your damage. Right. And he knows his role. He doesn't have to know the plan as much as he needs to know where he's supposed to be. And, and in this in this case, it's very comparable to kind of military training. Everybody right. doesn't know the whole plan. They are told their part, and then they go do their part. Right. right. It's kind of like a running back within football is – I mean, the the whole team doesn't maybe know what the running back does, but the running back knows exactly right. what he needs to do, right. and he needs to he needs to commit to the play no matter what. Mm-hmm. If it's for the deficit of the team and he gets absolutely obliterated by the D line, then so be it. But if he's the all star who's carrying the ball all the way to the the touchdown line, um, then by all means, it's either one of those circumstances. But right. he's doing it for the team, right? And and it just. I think it clarifies how involved uh, esports is because we've been talking about one game, right? Um, which has its own history, its own events, its own highs and lows, uh, the changes of technology and all of these things. But even within that game, there are various roles, uh, and it's so fascinating how different games have a relationship to the outside world right and they have their own world inside and so there's just a lot to know there this this thing has popped up really quickly there is um a lot of money in it there's a lot of interest in it Uh, i was just watching this last weekend um uh the the youtube algorithm in its uh wisdom uh proposed to me that I watch uh, the Gamers 8 Invitational, and I was like, I don't know what that is. And, you know, uh, anybody who's in, been interested in esports at all, there will just be, there's names that just pop up, and it's like, yeah, you've never heard of it. That's because a guy, anywhere, a guy could just go, like, I, I want to start the Banana uh, Ball Invitational. Right. And there it is. He did it. Yep. And if he can get people to come and play, then that's <laughs> all you need. And uh, in this sense, the Gamers 8 Invitational, uh, a very high-dollar event run out of Saudi Arabia, yeah. um, had they, they had StarCraft uh, a couple of weeks ago. They just finished Street Fighter VI, I think, uh, yesterday. And um, most of the time, uh, there are very few people that keep up with all the games. It's just too much. I mean, the right. hours of a day uh, with the advent, and, and, and this is probably something that uh, should mention uh, that that has helped to get this going too. Services like uh, Twitch TV, which was formerly called Justin TV, right. and then YouTube got into this as well with uh, YouTube Live. Um, people now play video games online. There are lots of people doing it right now. Whenever you're listening to this, there are lots and lots of people doing it right now, and I, I still run into people all the time who've never been to Twitch.tv, and that's fine. Um, but what's happening is they're playing the game live, Lots of people want to watch this. Some people who play this game. Some people who just like to watch this game. Some people who like to watch this person. 
right? Because what you were talking about earlier about content creation, um, that it, it, it is, uh, I think of it like micro entertainment, that if this is your niche, th- then you will go very deep into watching somebody talk about why they play the game a certain way. And, and you know, some people are more fun about it. Some people are really serious about it. They're trying to teach. Uh, there's just a lot of angles on it. But one thing about it is that um, I remember for a while there, uh, If by the way, if you are an uh, Amazon Prime uh, subscriber, you get a free subscription. to. You can pick a Twitch account to sub to every month. Right. And that gives them a certain amount of money right. every month. Because the thing, the way a subscription works on Twitch is, uh, say it's something like $8 a month that you would pay to be notified when somebody gets online uh, to have little emojis and emotes. Um, but you're paying, and that pays them. They, they get half of that, typically. I think it might have decreased recently. Uh, and then Twitch, the service, gets half of it. Right. And so this person, just like you were talking about earlier, it's another model where people can begin to make money off of playing games. Um, but what's, what's really overwhelming about it is... Um, Say I found, uh, I play Terran in StarCraft, and so I would watch the Terran streamers more than others, and then say I found my one or two favorite streamer. For a while there, I would just every day bring up their stream, you know, well, this is like four hours of content they're producing every day. Right. You're not going to be able to keep up with nope. all of this. Yeah. That's one person. Yeah, and the many people who watch them also have things to say, advice to give to that person. So if we're talking about tens of thousands of people watching a singular person say, hey, no, you could have done this better. Hey, no, this was the best way to do it. I mean, you're not going to gain that knowledge from just playing, even if you played 24 hours a day, every single day for your entire life. You would never get that kind of expertise if you were to, say, just watch this person once. Or or just live stream and have 10,000 people tell you, hey, this might be the best way. Right. And it's um, this is another big part of the story to understand how all this got going, though, because honestly, um, I played uh, Starcraft online a little bit back uh, in when I was a a teenager. It was not fun uh, because you would you would think. I'm going to get on there and I'm going to do this. Say I'm going to, I'm going to do a, you know, a, a bunker rush with Marines. And then uh, you would lose like, Im- like immediately. Yeah. There's a thousand ways to lose. And you would go, well, no, no, that's just a fluke. I'll, I'll play the game again. And then you get back on there and you lose in a completely different way because uh, humans do not play these games like computers do. Right. Computers are, have been historically very predictable uh, they operate in, in in a very straightforward way, and also computers have these weaknesses that if you do certain odd things, the computer kind of goes, "I don't know what to do about this." Right. And so you can sort of trick the computer. But meanwhile, it is a completely, especially if you're used to playing against computers and you get on against real people. All of a sudden, as you know, there are plenty of, uh, in particular, young men uh, who have spent hours, untold hours, coming up with tricky ways to win at games. I mean, it, it feels like to me they've made it their life mission 
Right. <laughs> right. And and not only to win the game, but to aggravate the person so much that they don't want to play anymore. Right. So Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy with how many strategies, either long initiated strategies from from early on you start it and then all the way to the end of the game, or if it's just a five second strategy. Right. There's plenty that have been created. Right. And I mean exploits on maps. People right. find places where they can shoot through a wall or, you know, clip uh, clipping behind you i mean there's just yes. uh and you know then and there's rumors about it then it gets fixed but then they find another weakness and this is just a part of what's uh going on and, and so uh twitch really got going right around 2010 as well and continues to be a big business twitch was bought by amazon somewhere around i think 2016 2017 yeah um and uh amazon paid uh for it, but it was a good investment in their view, and I believe they're right. Right. No, for sure. And it's by far the biggest streaming platform. I mean, if you were to maybe go five years ago, out of all of the content creators, out of everyone who was within the space, who was streaming um, and making content, there it was probably 90% of, of the populace was on there. Yeah. Now today, it's been a little bit evened out where because of YouTube getting in the game and other big people trying to get into the space like Kick, mm-hmm. then it's more evened out where still Twitch is one of the biggest, around 60%, yeah. but you've seen it divide a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and it's it's like a story like you hear in a lot of other um, businesses that whoever gets in first uh, has a big advantage. Right. And, Twitch got in first. Uh, what was Justin TV when a lot of kids were sitting in their rooms watching somebody play, you know, anything play, uh, mostly PC games. Uh, it right. really, uh, it really focused then on PC games in the late two thousands. Um, but now, uh, any game you can probably think of, uh, there's somebody playing it right now on Twitch. Uh, there might be one player and one viewer for a boy in his blob on the NES or yeah. some obscure game. Um, but it's shocked me as the years have kept going by, you can just search on there and find, you know, I mean, somebody doing a speed run, somebody, you know, uh, cause watching other people play games and, and, and people who've said to me, I can't believe people do that. Um, if you were never into video gaming, it'll surprise you. But a lot of us who grew up playing video games, you typically a lot of times were with other people watching them play. Right. And it was fun uh, because you can sit back and think about what's happening more while you're in a game. Obviously you have to be thinking about what you're going to do. But growing up with my cousins, you know, we did, there was a lot of time where my cousin Ben would be playing, you know, Zelda and I'd be sitting there trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? You know, and talking it through, it was just like anything else where it's a shared experience and Twitch has kind of capitalized on that. Right. No, for sure. And it's crazy how they're, how much they're capitalizing just in general with, even the people who want to stream and want to uh, hit it big where they're getting a lot of money from this and this is their full-time job now. I mean, you'll see people stream for seven years in a row with zero viewers just hoping to hit it big. And I mean, it's just such an odd phenomenon today. Right. And, and in, in that way it is, um, sort of more, uh, incrementalized than, uh, physical sports in that if you have some skill and you are somewhat entertaining, uh, 
right. then you can get on Twitch. You, you, it is hard at first to gain viewers. Most people will kind of share that they're doing this on social media and these sorts of things. And it starts with some friends. Um, but then obviously some people turn out are really entertaining slash very good at the game. That is right. sort of the, if you're both entertaining and good at the game, that's, that's, that's key. Uh, and then there are people who are making lots and lots of money. Uh, we're talking, uh, and, and this is, there's not, you know, hundreds of them making millions of dollars, but there are people who, uh, cause, cause you can see how incrementally it would build up. If you get 10 subscribers, then you're making $40 a month roughly off of this game. Right. And so it's in a lot of ways, it's much easier to see how it can grow than say, if you are a high school baseball player, how are you going to begin to make money off right. of that? There is n there is no direct means, um, but uh, there's a lot of stories about how you know. I mean, uh, one uh, one figure I'm sure you know about Day Nine. Um, he got into uh, the world of Twitch by um, he did what was it a hundred days straight of of uh, yeah streamed it, I at think it first was nonstop yeah right and and it was just sort of this. You could think about it from an entertainment standpoint. You have to do something that people go, I've never seen somebody do that before. Right. And then all of a sudden, people tuned in, tuned in, tuned in. He became familiar to people. And at a certain point, he said, all right, I'm going to calm down, make this a little more manageable. And still to this day, he kind of has a, a certain thing he does on Monday, a certain thing he does on Tuesday. For a while, he was very involved in StarCraft. Now he does a bunch of different games. And he's sort of a personality in the esports world. But this right. is a story that's been played out in a few different ways that you find an angle. Um, he has a very bubbly personality, so people like to watch him, but he also had a kind of a sales pitch. I'm going to do this thing that you haven't seen somebody do before. Uh, it's also very challenging to, right. to be on a stream, uh, for a hundred days. Uh, and then all of a sudden people know who you are and people want to know what else you do. Right. Yeah. And as soon as you find that niche, then that's kind of what you're known for. And that's what people expect from you. Therefore, it's it's kind of what they want to watch. Right. It's like a procedurally generated or a regular scheduled show. It's just something that you know and what to expect. And it's comforting and entertaining at the same time the same bit right and so there's all of these sort of sub genres that you can do you can get on there and just do what they call a let's play where you're just going to watch me play a game right and i'll talk you through what i think about it or you know some people are really animated and they scream at horror games and or they get really mad at you know platformer games um and you know anything from that to uh i'm going to try to to beat a game i'm going to uh I'm going to try to do a speed run. Uh, people come up with stuff and you're kind of going on the journey with them. And if you find games interesting, then well, watching somebody who is interesting, do a thing that you already find interesting turns out is pretty engaging. Yeah. And so it, it's good that we've done a deep dive on sort of the history of esports in a way, because all of this you are experiencing through high school. Right. And you found yourself smack in the middle of it. Right. Did you travel uh, to to go? I know. So one one thing that's strange about this is you can compete online uh, at, at some of these types of events, but the big events you travel to go there. Right. So how much did you travel in high school? Yeah. So during the time, I mean, I started all the way in elementary school. I traveled a lot in middle school. Okay. And then I 
my career kind of died out in high school. Okay. So early high school. So I didn't really travel during high school. It was mainly middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, most of these events are online, the small ones, but the big ones like uh, one of the biggest ones is California Anaheim. They host one of the biggest events, hands down, within esports. Was and this MLG Anaheim? Yeah, yeah. And by far is still today the biggest, even though Major League Gaming isn't still a thing. Right. Uh, and so we would travel off and on to maybe regional events, as also uh, national events. Mm-hmm. And depending on what your team or sponsor would get you into then you could then go and travel to those places a lot of the times it was very very bare bones kind of situation where i mean you and your buddies are getting in one car as much as you can traveling on maybe a tank of gas and you're just going as far as you can and hopefully you'll make it and then once you're there I mean, you're either sleeping in a car, right. you're you got one one king bed that you're that you're all <laughs> sleeping in, and yep. so it's very bare bones, but it's just the enjoyment of just competing and right. playing with the highest talent. Yes, it's um, it reminds me of a lot of grassroots stories that you know. Um, you didn't feel 100% when you were competing because uh, who feels 100% when they uh, slept with one of their partners half laying on them uh, all night and these sorts of things. Uh, But at the same time, you're doing something that you loved and something that probably five years before you could not have imagined you would be doing. Right. And so it's a very unique experience, right? Yeah, it's very, uh, very, very interesting. And I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it, but I wish it was very different and I'm, I'm very privileged to still be involved in it, Mm -hmm. but seeing that it's more developed, more sophisticated, uh, and more structured and where everyone can get involved without having maybe the same, same kind of treatment that I had, but still being able to love the game and make their own memories. Right. Um, so then, okay, high school goes on, uh, and I'm sure uh, all the papers started coming in about college. Uh, how did you make a decision about where to go to college? Yeah, yeah. So after after my career within esports, uh, because of the half life of video games, they naturally come out every single year with a new game. And with that particular game that I went pro in, Black Ops 2, I I really didn't like the next game that was coming out, which mm-hmm. was Ghosts. And mm-hmm. so I would later go to Halo Reach, play competitively with the same organization, MLG. But then that, that specific title died very fast within mm-hmm. the competitive scene. So then I was kind of stuck in a lull where I didn't want to go back to Call of Duty, but I didn't want to, I didn't know where to go. And so I just stopped playing esports in general. And that was kind of my retirement, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, then after that, I had at the same time been playing tennis for a very, very long time. Yeah. Uh, and that's where kind of my high school career picked up where playing t- high school tennis and doing all that stuff uh, was was really fun to me. And so then I was really focusing in on that. Um, and I played uh, at state for for Illinois or for my high school in Illinois. And it really opened a lot of doors within high school. But I, I knew I didn't want to play tennis. I knew that I wanted to get an education. I wasn't sure at the time. And I, I definitely wasn't mature at the time to really figure that out yet. So I picked just what was most convenient to me, 
And the college that I was originally looking at was a very small college because I was extremely shy and uh, something that had my degree. And at that time, it was engineering. Mm -hmm. Didn't want to go into engineering, but that was just kind of the easy kind of selection because I was good at math. Yeah. And so I went there. Um, and fortunately, at that time, I uh, they had a club there, which was a League of Legends club. And I had been playing. It's another game that's a MOBA. And we had been playing that for a, for a long time. And so I joined the club, got involved in that and created my own community. But because of my maybe not great choices within choosing college or not having a very clear direction on what I wanted to go into, I, I flunked out of college. And so that, that kind of ended all of that community or organization being involved in that. Yeah. Um, so college really wasn't, uh, what I would say maybe selected. I didn't really select. I just kind of used the easy choice that was on paper, mm -hmm. the cheapest, the smallest that I wanted. Um, but it took me a long time to get to a college that I really wanted, uh, which was eventually Liberty University. Um, it took a long process because I had flunked out, had really bad grades. I had to update those. So I went to a community college, yeah. uh, worked on getting my GPA up. Once I got in there, I went to Liberty University Online because my grades still weren't good enough to get into the residential program. So I was on their online program. And then I uh, had worked really hard to get my GPA up enough to get into the residential yeah. program. Eventually went residential. Uh, for my last two years within Liberty. And it's and in Lynchburg, Virginia, right? Right, right. Yeah. That's in Lynchburg, Virginia. Excellent institution. Uh, really has a well-integrated approach where it doesn't compromise the gospel, but also educates you enough and has enough resources to make you very competitive within the world. Um, so it teaches you both a large aspect of the gospel as well as all holistically different views within viewing mm -hmm. um, the Bible, the church, and various aspects, uh, which was something that I definitely wanted being a new Christian at the time. So uh, eventually, long long journey and short story short, a uh, long story short, uh, I went to Liberty University, finished out my bachelor's with psychology, and then I was going to get my master's in uh, clinical mental health counseling uh, because of the nature of the way that a lot of the DSM-5, which is the diagnostics for psychology, was going at the time. I didn't agree with their approach of diagnosing uh, various different conditions, so I chose to go a different route, which is where I'm at now, um, getting my master's in information technology. Yeah. And were you getting that through Liberty still? Yeah, to, for Liberty as well. Great. And you have ended up here in Evansville. Um, but before this, this is not your first uh, eSports job. Correct. Uh, so how did you then transition to become an eSports coordinator coach and, and doing what you're doing now? Yeah, so during the summer of 2021, sorry, 2022, my wife and I got married. And mm -hmm. so we moved back to our hometown in the Quad Cities and we were trying to just settle down, figure married life out and everything like that. I was looking for local jobs to kind of do and figure out and I didn't realize at the time because of being away from esports for so long that esports had gotten so big, especially in the college region. And I really started looking into this and I realized there was 
a opportunity with a local college there or university there called St. Ambrose University. And because of my background within uh, first-person shooters, Call of Duty specifically, uh, I was hired on as their FPS coach, which I coached Rainbow Six Siege, Apex Legends, Call of Duty, Halo, Counter-Strike, uh, Valorant. These are all very popular FPS <laughs> yes, games. Yes, there are that many right. competitive first-person shooter games. Right. And there's when you were mentioning earlier how Halo died out, it's like, why do these die out? Well, because there's a lot of guys fighting to be in the arena is right. one of the big reasons. Right, and these aren't even... even there's many, many more right. and through many different platforms that are raising that we just haven't gone into. And so um, looking at this holistically, I was just their coach where I was just scheduling practices, giving them advice as coaches do, mm -hmm. going over anal analytical uh review of the games, mm -hmm. going over communication, teamwork, bonding, various things like that, that a coach would classically do. All the things that a sports coach would do, essentially I was doing as an esports coach. Right. And so I was working over these teams, developing them. And then at, through that year, we had some national appearances as well as some very, very inv invitational good appearances. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I didn't want to just be a coach. I knew that I wanted to be a director. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at a lot of different opportunities elsewhere to find that. And luckily, I found the opportunity with the University of Evansville. Right. Well, great. So... You now, you're in uh, about two months in to beginning this esports program at UE. Do you all have a target of when you're trying to uh, really launch, of when you want to have, uh, say, students who are dedicated to certain games? Do you know yet what your timeline is on that? Or where are you in kind of the specific to UE esports program? Yeah, yeah. So looking at this as a whole, the way that our program is going about is through three different approaches. One approach is through competitive gaming, where that's kind of my background. Mm -hmm. The second part is a community base where we're partnering with a local, um, well, on-campus club called Game Player Society. Mm -hmm. They're classically a board game uh, club that plays video games sometimes, and mm -hmm. so we're partnering with them to get them involved more in video games. Mm -hmm. And then the third aspect is with our esports competition community careers, ECs for short, mm -hmm. uh, because it's a mouthful. And so that's mainly focused on everything around competition. That would be broadcasting, production, social media management, event planning, everything that would be around competition. That's essentially what that is for with getting into the academic integration. But going back to that competitive play, what we're looking for when launching this, to, to speak, is due to our facility being newly renovated here soon, then we'll, that'll be open in October, and we'll be doing essentially a soft launch mm -hmm. of that facility where we're getting that going uh, through community, making it a very accessible place for not only on-campus students to be involved, but hopefully also community partners to be involved with youth camps and various things like that. So that, that'll that be our, our main focus this academic year and getting some students involved in competition and various things like that. But then next year is going to be really 
our our big year for competing and in being in various competitions. One of the biggest organizations is called NACE, which is the National Association of Collegiate Esports. Mm-hmm. They have over 250 schools involved in their organization. Great. And it's one of the biggest competitions where the winners are sometimes winning 50,000 to anywhere from 150,000 dollars in scholarship to to the students that go back to them. And so we'll be competing in that this next academic year. Yeah. And I, uh, you and I have talked about this before, so I know an immediate thing that I think would be uh, really good is to get some kind of competition going on between UE and USI. Right. Uh, because there is a club uh, there at the club level at USI. And, you know, you guys are trying to move from nothing past the club level to have competitive esports as quickly as possible, which makes, I think, a natural competitive environment. Right, right. right. And that's the hope is not necessarily that we're trying to keep it under wraps or very be very exclusive, but we do want to be competitive. Yeah. But we also also we know that competition breeds success. And sure. so that's just ultimately what we want. If USI maybe copies us a little bit and starts their own esports team, then so be it. We right. would love the competition and be able to create that community environment, but also that top competitive environment as well. Right. And, and it's it's certain at this point that um, there are there are literally billions of dollars in esports. Right. Over the last, uh, say, 13 years, we have seen that um, a lot of missteps in terms of organization. I remember for a while in StarCraft, um, because there was no coordination, there would be on the same weekends three different tournaments, and you're dealing with a small pool of players. Right. And so um, uh, some of these tournaments crashed and burned because uh, they didn't have promises from certain players that they would show up and uh, you know there are all stories about players saying we'll be there and then it's like well sorry they're they're offering a hundred thousand dollar prize pool at this other event so i'm obviously going to go over there well then this tournament that had rented a venue or i mean it there there are lots of scary stories but this is what entrepreneurship is like right uh no sure things risk lots of risk um, but it is certain at this point there is a lot of money to be had, and um, some of the growing pains are out, I think. Right, uh, right. People are a little more careful, uh, promising uh, promising only what they can promise. That's a part of the story that we've certainly seen that's gone wrong, is people promising, oh, yeah, everybody will be here, and we'll get the best talent, the best you know machines, the best organization, and uh, if you can't actually deliver that, then you better not promise that. Um, because you can quickly lose a lot of money. Right. And due to the mismanagement, there's been a lot of reluctancy to a lot of different businesses getting getting into the, the scene, which has been unfortunate, but that's just the same growing pains as we right. know with business. We've seen it with all the way back in the good old ages of gold mining. I mean, when people struck gold, right. they were risking everything to kind of hit it big and Plenty of people hit it big, but there were massive amounts of people who didn't. Right. And in the same aspect, I mean, traditional sports has seen that. And now esports is coming up to bat to, to see that kind of same concept. Right. And, and you could pretty much, I would say, mark uh, a major turn when Amazon bought Twitch. Uh, I would say that's a big kind of gold rush sort of turn where everybody goes, oh, it's beyond the question of is there uh, money in this uh, Amazon means Amazon's buying in means uh, the money moved to it, uh, right. and 
so there is there is such a future it could go and will go so many different directions there will still be great stories of success and great stories of failure um but it, it's it is something that you can pick up the basics of and you know most people in any game play against computers to get started with and at a certain point you'll reach a ceiling if right. if you have some skill at a game you'll get to the point to where pretty much mostly the computers are not as interesting anymore and um it's a big step to then shift to play. Uh, one thing that I, I've seen Nintendo do, I think, well, that I hope never leaves us is couch co-op, where you're actually playing against people uh, and with people who are right there present with you. I think that's the, the best thing that video games can do is to foster relationships like that. Um, because certainly there's something to be said for the highly competitive environment of me and a computer screen playing against somebody else wherever they are at their own computer screen. But I think that the best case has always been togetherness because games of all kinds foster togetherness. And that's a big thing that um, for all that we hear about negative things that are happening to young people, in a lot of ways, if games are managed well, they can foster togetherness, community. Uh, they can provide scholarships. Uh, there, there's a lot of positive things that can come out of this. Right. But certainly, like anything else, um, it can be bad for you. It can be something that you do so much that you neglect more important things in life. Um, but games are a part of people's life now. And competitive gaming is continuing to rise more and more every year. It should uh, tell everyone something that uh, you and I were both surprised by a Saudi Arabian tournament that popped up out of nowhere that obviously in terms of production, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on. Oh yeah. But because they, uh, they are certain there is money to be had in it. Yeah. And th that's where these, what we would call third world country regions are now becoming on par with first world company re or first world country regions where a lot of people who were very hesitant to invest money, especially in, in countries like Japan, like the Middle East, like in South America, these regions didn't invest. And now you're seeing more and more that they're investing more money where now the whole world is having certain companies, certain teams represent their country just like in the world cup in fifa right and yes and and strangely there are there is um esports in terms of like the nba uh their their nba teams have esports players who play for their team uh it's very confusing but right. this is happening with fifa it's happening where people play fifa uh 23 or whatever the most recent you know uh right. and they play that and and the because there's money in it, the same organizations are often buying them. It, the directions that this is going uh, continues to be surprising. And then the sponsorships, because you're talking about a lot of eyes. And so it, it started with the, the things we've already talked about, Mountain Dew and Doritos, and then moved on to Intel and uh, hardware companies. But now it's any company that wants to right. have eyes on their product is advertising through esports because you can have people from all over the world. Tuning in, um, even, you know, I've watched uh, 
commentators, languages I don't speak, but you can see what's happening in the game. If, if it's a game you understand, you can watch the game. You can even mute the sound. I mean, um, and so there is just a wide market for this. Right. And it's crazy because of the partnerships that are being made today with Mercedes-Benz being one right. of the biggest sponsors within the the, re, the realm of esports. Right. I mean, they're a car company, a luxury car company mm-hmm. at that. And yet they're sponsoring a ton of different teams within esports, And it's just crazy to see where these Spartan, uh, partnerships have taken place and just prospered both uh, esports and the company that's sponsoring. Right. And I mean, it, it goes as far as um, I am told that in some of these poor countries around the world, kids will have phones and they'll be playing games on their phones and, and right. uh, achieving levels of skill no one expected because look if that's all you have and you spend hours and hours a day doing it you figure out how to do it yeah and so uh, competition's all over the place with this yeah no it's definitely crazy well sam those are all the questions i have is there anything else you would like to, to share about kind of what you're doing and where you're going yeah yeah so ue is really taking this endeavor within the evansville area as being the front runners within esports let, let alone the awareness of video games yeah not only mentioning maybe the deficits of video games are often the pitfalls of people who play video games but also the benefits that mm-hmm. video games kind of uh, bring as we talked about with that social aspect and there's so much more that's there but it's off, often looked down where uh, maybe the classic approach where i grew up is uh hey what, what are you doing wasting your time? Get off the couch, go go outside and play with your friends. And not that that's necessarily bad. There's definitely the need to go outside, but different ways that, that video games can really help, let alone give, give scholarships, provide money for various people. So that's what we're really, we're really undertaking here within University of Evansville. And we hope that anybody who's interested will just reach out to, to us over there on our website or through any of our socials to kind of get more information or be in contact with that. Yeah. Is there a social you can share a good way to reach you? Yeah. Currently we're developing those okay. because of just acquiring those names to make it a little bit more simple sure. than, than what we have. I believe that is UE aces esports okay. so if you look that up on any of the socials i'm sure you'll find it but if not you can go to our website at university of evansville and then just search esports and you'll find it great well listen thank you so much man for talking to me about this today there's so much more going to happen with this and i look forward you know maybe we can have you back in a year when uh, things are more in full swing and we'll hear stories about all that has been involved in this process yeah for sure thank you for having me Well, this has been Empires of the Future, and we'll see you in the future.